This is a CBC podcast. We can choose to lead by recognizing where the world is heading, or we can bury our heads in the sand. Pretend that the world is not moving rapidly towards a cleaner, greener future. Constituents like mine know that they are public enemy number one, who will be crushed by the NDP Liberals' anti-energy, anti-private sector agenda. Alberta Conservative MP Shannon Stubbs and Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson both making the point that the stakes are high when it comes to the government's plan for an oil and gas emissions cap. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we'll hear from industry, environmentalists, and one of the ministers behind the policy, including his take on whether Alberta's premier really wants to fight climate change. Also on the show, she's helped millions of people better understand the overdose crisis. Beth Macy is the author of Dope Sick, and she joins us to talk about the extreme lengths that some Americans are going to to help those dealing with addiction. And one man's political ad is another man's documentary. We'll deconstruct Pierre Polyev's 15-minute housing video to see what it tells us about him and where the political discourse is headed in this country. But we begin with a long-awaited plan that's provoking a big reaction. The House is now in session. Federal officials say it's a world first, a plan to drive down emissions from Canada's oil and gas industry. On Thursday, the federal government released the framework for a cap, which they say could cut pollution from the country's highest emitting sector by a third by 2030. They'll do it with a cap and trade system. But some in the industry warn this plan will hold them back. And some environmentalists say it's too slow. So what does the federal government say to those concerns? Jonathan Wilkinson is Natural Resources and Energy Minister. We caught up with him on Thursday. Minister, thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for having me. I want to start with whether you are moving fast enough on the question of this cap. You have the Climate Action Network Canada saying the lag time here for these rules to kick in is, quote, unacceptable. The world cannot afford three more years of the oil and gas industry wreaking havoc, they said. Equiterre says the framework lacks ambition and rigor. Why not go faster? Well, I certainly respect uh, the comments from the environmental community uh, about the need for speed. Uh, Clearly, the science of climate change is not working in our favor right now. Um, But what I would say is folks need to understand that in order to actually make the reductions that we are requiring the sector to make by 2030, there is a lot of work that folks have to do. So, you know, some of the reductions are going to come from the implementation, for example, of carbon capture and sequestration systems in the oil sands. That takes uh, significant time to design, to procure the, uh, the, 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 the elements of it to construct the facility and, and eventually to operationalize it. You don't do that overnight. Um, large capital projects take time. So we are moving absolutely as fast as we can, but folks in the sector are going to need to achieve the significant reductions by 2030, and that means they're going to actually have to start to act tomorrow. Well, if I understand correctly, though, your projections say that they might actually be able to produce more oil up until 2030, and yet your answer to environmental groups is it's impossible to go faster? Well, look, uh, I would say a couple of things. I mean, the first is Canada is a complicated country and production is uh, is the responsibility of the provinces, not the federal government. Um, we have to 
clearly stay in our lane, and the Supreme Court has been very clear about that. We regulate emissions, um, and what we are doing is focusing on how fast we can go with respect to what is technically feasible to get done between now and 2030 um, to ensure that the sector is making a significant contribution to, uh, to achieving Canada's overall climate plan. I would also say, though, that you know, folks need to understand that one of the other commitments we made in putting the cap on is that we're not going to be requiring reductions in, um, in production that are not linked to reductions in global demand. And all of the forecasts, including the International Energy Agency, see the demand for oil and gas actually peaking by the end of the decade and starting to decline thereafter. So for Canada to say somehow we're going to actually cut production, even if constitutionally we could do that, all you're doing is actually offshoring production to somewhere else because the demand still exists. And, and in that context, you'd just be impoverishing Canada, but making no difference from a climate perspective, which would make no sense whatsoever. Okay. Uh, I do want to get to demand in a moment, but I actually want to stay in this space. Uh, as you said, you talked about staying in your lane, what the rules the Constitution allow you to do. We heard from your government that you were factoring in potential legal challenges from the provinces. Did you have to restrain your goals here? Well, I don't think we restrained our goals, but certainly we reflected on the decisions, the recent decisions of the, of the, the Supreme Court and the Federal Court of Appeal. It, it made it harder. Well, it certainly clarified some things to try to make sure that we were actually uh, operating very clearly within areas of federal jurisdiction. I think that's important. That's what the court asked us to do. That's why this is very, very clearly focused on emissions, and it's an emissions cap. It is not a production cap because that is outside of our jurisdictional authority. Now, you did talk about this as being a first in the world when you announced this with your colleagues on Thursday. Various industry groups have said, though, that they believe it's going to hold the industry back. I'm talking about folks like the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, for instance. What do you say to people who work in the oil and gas sector about the impact that this is going to have on their industry, Canada being, as you put it, first in the world? Well, I would say, first of all, this is not just about fighting climate change. This is actually about enabling the medium and long-term competitiveness of the Canadian energy sector. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a car, it is oil and gas with ultra-low carbon from a life cycle perspective that's going to be valued in a world that is actually moving to address the climate issue. And, you know, with respect to jobs and economic opportunity, I, I'd refer you to the comments from the Alberta Federation of Labor, which represents 170,000 unionized workers in Alberta, many of them the oil and gas space, that talks about the fact that this cap is going to spur an emissions reduction jobs boom in Alberta. But you have, even the Alberta NDP is saying they're worried it's going to be a production cap. Like, I appreciate that you can point to one group, but traditionally the Alberta NDP would be a little bit closer to you folks than, say, Danielle Smith, and they're saying, we, we have concerns there might be a problem here. Well, I mean, I'm certainly, certainly happy to talk not only to Danielle Smith, but also to Rachel Notley to try to assuage those concerns. But I would actually um, suggest that folks look at the big areas of emissions that are covered under the cap. One of them is methane reductions at 75%. That's something Premier Smith committed to in her own emissions reduction plan that she released before the election. The uh, megaton reductions in the pathways in the oil sands actually are numbers that came directly from pathways that Alberta and Canada agreed to. So at the end of the day, and as you pointed out, we do see increases in production to 2030. So I think, you know, some of the concerns um, are, are misplaced, but perhaps, you know, this is quite new. It will require conversation. And that's, to be honest, that's why I was going to Calgary was to actually work with the sector. If, if the Conservative Party was not playing such silly games and making us vote all night, I would be in Calgary having those conversations tomorrow. 
Okay. I, I assume those conversations are, are still coming regardless of the back and forth in the House. But I, I want to get away from procedural issues in the House of Commons and go way more big picture here, Minister, uh, to get your perspective. I mean, you have Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, who said on this program in the summer that she believes that her province will be producing oil at the same levels, if not higher, in 2050 and using technology to abate emissions. Just recently, you had the president of COP, the climate gathering, who is, yes, linked to the oil industry himself, telling the meeting he didn't believe in the need to phase out fossil fuels. So you are up against, and I appreciate it's not just you, but some very staunch resistance from people in positions of power, Minister. And I wonder how you see that argument getting sorted out. Well, look, um, I think Premier Smith's argument actually is just logically incoherent. Um, you know, it's 10 to 15 percent of emissions are related to the production of oil and gas. Eighty-five uh, percent plus are related to the combustion of fossil fuels that are used in cars and in, and in natural gas furnaces and everything else. You can't have a situation in 2050 where the volume of oil and gas that's being consumed is the same as it is today. You will have 85% of the emissions, even if you actually achieve net zero production emissions. So, so are you saying she's not telling, she's not setting realistic goals for the people in her province? I think she's not telling them, the, you know, the facts around what, what climate change requires. But, but I will say that in 2050, there will still be significant volumes of oil and gas, not the same level that we produce today, but significant volumes of oil and gas that are going to be used in non-combustion applications like asphalt and lubricants and solvents and waxes and carbon graphite and hydrogen and a range of other things um, that where you're not burning it and you're not creating carbon emissions. And there will be uh, volumes that are used in abated combustion applications like in a natural gas power plant where you're capturing the carbon and sequestering it. But it won't be at the same level as today. Nobody who actually believes in fighting climate change could ever come to that conclusion. Speaking of coming to conclusions, you're saying nobody who believes in fighting climate change could come to that conclusion. Are you, is, should our conclusion be that you don't think Daniel Smith believes in fighting climate change? Well, I, I honestly, I'm having a hard time reconciling because she does talk about achieving net zero production emissions, but she does seem, and I, I heard her say this at, at the World Petroleum Congress, that she seems to think that you can still have um, volumes of oil and gas that are the same as today, but that just is, isn't true. I mean, at the end of the day, 85% plus of emissions come from combustion. That's why we're deploying electric vehicles. That's why we're deploying heat pumps. You know, that's why we're improving energy efficiency. That's why we're phasing out coal. I'm just going to jump in here, Minister, because it is an important thing that you're saying, and I just want to be crystal clear. I don't want to belabor the point, but you're saying you're not sure if the Premier of Alberta believes in fighting climate change. Well, I don't want to be quite that strong. I want to say that I don't understand her argument because it it just doesn't, for me, it doesn't make sense. Um, You must reduce the combustion of fossil fuels where you cannot abate the emissions. Um, That's just a fact. Like, you can't have the same number of cars running around on the roads that are burning gasoline and diesel fuel, emitting CO2, if you're actually going to get to net zero. It's just not possible. And I think the Premier kind of understands that. I mean, she's very keen on hydrogen and and fuel cell technology for, uh, for vehicles, for transportation. There's a reason why hydrogen makes sense in transportation applications. It's because there's no combustion. Okay, I do want to finish this by talking a bit about uh, your own government, your record, and the way you're connecting with Canadians right now. Angus Reid put out a survey less than a month ago, and it did really catch my attention that suggested twice as many people thought the Conservatives had a better plan to fight climate change 
than your government. 28% for the Conservatives versus 14 for the Liberals. You've tried to make this the signature issue for your government. Why then does it seem like you might be losing ground on this issue? <laughs> well, that's hard for me to comment on, I guess. I, have, I didn't do the poll and I, I haven't heard from Canadians, but I would say that you know, I, I go across this country. I think you know I used to be the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, and now I work on climate change from a different perspective as Energy and Resources Minister. What I hear from Canadians is that they are very concerned about climate change. I think that's true in Alberta as it is in, in Quebec and Ontario. And in fact, I mean, with respect to a cap, some of the polls show that 60% of Albertans support the idea of a cap on, on oil and gas emissions. Right, but the question is whether they believe that your government has the plan to... Well, to, I think, I think Canadians also want to understand that, you know, there is a plan for the future, that there is a plan for the economy that's going to ensure that they have jobs and that their children will have good jobs going forward. And, you know, part of my job going forward, and maybe I need to work harder at this, is, uh, is to ensure that we're showing people. And, you know, the announcement of the $11.5 billion investment Dow made in a net zero petrochemical facility in Port Saskatchewan last week is a good example. The, the uh, ultra low carbon hydrogen facility that Air Products is building in, in Edmonton. There are examples all across the country, but perhaps I need to be selling that a little bit more, more uh, strongly. I, re- I really want to close on that note and ask the minister, I mean, is that something when you're sort of alone in your office or on that airplane to Calgary, that you're asking yourself, do I need to be doing more? Do we need to be doing more? It's just not going quite the way we want right now. You know what? I always think I need to be doing more. I've been working on climate-related issues now for 30 years, 20 in the private sector and, uh, and now 10 in government. Um, it's why I got into politics in the first place. And if I ever need more motivation, you know, I look around me at the forest fires and everything else that's happening. But I also look at the opportunities um, that exist for, uh, for Canada, if in fact we are thoughtful about this. And of course, at the end of the day, I also turn around and my youngest daughter is there telling me every day that we need to do more. Okay. Well, we're going to, we are not going to do more. We're going to leave the conversation here, Minister. Thank you very much for your time today. All right. Thank you very much. Jonathan Wilkinson is the Federal Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. He raised some questions there about just how committed the Alberta Premier is to fighting climate change. We wanted to hear Danielle Smith's take. Her office referred us to comments she made this week talking about efforts to reduce emissions through carbon capture, bringing online nuclear reactors and other technology. Here's a bit more of what Premier Smith said. We accept that as the owner of this resource, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're taking care of emissions. That's why we set our target in the first place. What we don't accept is the federal government thinking they can do it better than us when they can't. And that's why we're going to be asserting our constitutional right to be able to manage this resource. Smith and Wilkinson have made their cases about what this means for climate change. But what do industry and environmentalists think? Let's start with Dale Bugin. He's the executive vice president of the Canadian Climate Institute, an environmental think tank. Welcome to the house. Nice to be here. Now, you heard what the minister had to say about going faster and his argument that it's not really possible. What do you think of that? I think there's a few layers to going faster. The first layer is the ambition of the cap. And I think there, they've struck a balance between reasonable and doable, but also necessary to drive the emissions reductions needed for Canada to get to a 2030 target and contribute to efforts to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. The second layer is how quickly these regulations go into force and Mm. get implemented. And that feels slow to me. That feels like there is a need to get some certainty here about what the rules of the game are, to not just put a framework out, but to actually get the 
final regulations in place. That can help mobilize the capital needed to produce these emissions and give industry the certainty it needs to do that in a reasonable, smooth way. How important are these regulations, and I think perhaps we should put in the same bucket the methane emissions that we heard announced this week too, how important is that to Canada uh, achieving its climate ambitions? I think our analysis of the emissions reductions plan last year, and we're just doing the new emissions reductions plan right now and, and digging through it. But I think the clear upshot is, is that this is a sector that has the biggest source of emissions in Canada, the fastest growing source of emissions in Canada. And if Canada wants to hit its 2030 targets, this is a sector that has to be dealt with. Emissions in this sector have to start going the other direction or else progress in all the other sectors it's getting swamped. It's getting overcome by growth in this sector. So it's really important for 2030 targets, uh, though I do agree that it's not just one policy. It's a suite of policies for oil and gas, methane regulations, this cap, also the CCUS, the Carbon Capture Investment Tax Credits. One of the critiques that is starting to emerge of the cap um, from folks like the NDP, the Green Party, is that there are loopholes in this. In your analysis, and I appreciate that the information is just coming out, do you detect loopholes? So what they're really talking about is this 25 megatons of compliance flexibility. Mm -hmm. And that is something we didn't know was going to be in this package. So it's a sort of new addition. So basically, in layman's terms, it's like if the companies can't meet their targets, they have a way to kind of buy their way out of it. Kind of. I mean, it's not a company-specific target. It's a mm -hmm. sector-specific target, right? Mm -hmm. So the total number of permits in the system is what defines the cap. So firms can buy credits from each other within mm -hmm. that cap, but they can also go beyond that. They can also buy offsets from emissions outside of the cap, details to be determined a little mm -hmm. bit. They can also invest in this fund that's going to be created. Again, the details not quite stable. And maybe they can even buy international credits under Article 6 through international processes. So is it a good thing or bad thing? I think it's a reasonable thing. I think that that kind of flexibility is a way of maintaining lower costs for the system. It recognizes that there's some uncertainty in that international demand that the minister talked about, about how much demand there will be. And this gives a sort of safety valve for firms to give them additional means to comply with this policy without having to constrain their production. That is a reasonable approach, especially because they're trying to limit those mechanisms to things that will actually lead to extra emissions reductions. It's not going to be a get-out-of-jail-free card. They're going to have to build those mechanisms in a way that it actually does translate something like one-to-one. -one. We're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dale Bugin of the Canadian Climate Institute. Now, for an industry perspective, Tristan Goodman is president and CEO of the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada, a national lobby group representing more than 140 of Canada's oil and gas companies. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much. We heard the Natural Resources Minister saying this isn't a production cap. He still forecasts production of oil and gas to increase for a few years. And he says the government will not be requiring reductions in production that aren't linked to reductions in global demand. Does that ease your concerns? Uh, no, it doesn't. The fact is there are aspects that we agree actually with the minister on, you know, how he sort of sees enabling competitiveness, how he sort of sees the importance of the oil and gas sector. But uh I'm afraid to say we disagree and we think this is this is going to be a, a production cap and it, it has a number of concerns. It's also unnecessary, actually, given existing federal policies. 
Okay, so let's unpack all of that. When you say it's going to be a production cap, and he says, well, in fact, we forecast production increasing for several years. How do you square that circle? So the first thing is, it, it by its very nature, and the minister has actually talked about this, things are not set within this policy yet. Just simply, you know, there is uncertainty. And investors, unfortunately, do not like uncertainty. So that's the first problem we face. The second problem- So pro- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there, uh, Mr. Goodman, just Certainly. to understand. You, you, say, you say it's not set. The government says, well, this is a framework and we want feedback from folks like yourself. Is, is that not something that you want to give them? Is that not sort of how the process should work? Well, actually, we have been providing them feedback for several years and it's been largely ignored. And that's actually the problem that some of this is quite technical and the government doesn't seem to have that technical expertise and they seem to not be listening to the industry with that technical expertise. That's the main problem. We're looking for genuine, a genuine process of engagement, not sort of a, a process that's just going to check a box. So are you going to offer them more feedback now or you've been put off the whole Absolutely. thing? Okay. Of course, we'll move forward with them. We hope that our feedback this time will be listened to. I mean, of course, we are in alignment with some things on where they're going. And we think that there is an existing process that covers the vast majority of the industry on emissions reductions in a legislative framework. That was the point, actually, of the federal government's methane regulations. And we did work with them on that. So if I try to digest what you just said there, basically, you're saying most of this is covered elsewhere. The government doesn't need to do it. That is correct. Legally, this is going to be covered. It's covered actually within the provinces themselves, BC, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And it is also covered uh, within the new methane regulations. Now, whether those remain constitutional has something to be discussed by the provinces and the federal government. But, you know, there are actually, is there is a structure there that is covered. And the emissions cap actually recognizes that in the detail. So the real question is, if it's recognized, why do you have an emissions cap on the entire sector? It's it's just illogical. I mean, we heard from both an environmental group and from the government itself saying that these moves are required to meet Canada's emission reduction targets. And you're just saying, no way, no how? They're actually not. And, and even some environmental groups have recognized that. A number of Indigenous groups who seem to have not been consulted with also recognize that. So the government really has has dropped the ball on this one, and it's it's unfortunate. Um, they need to rethink uh, and and sort of regroup how they're going to go forward with this, and actually look at their entire suite of climate policies and how they all fit together. And that's been missing. Okay, I thank you for your time and perspective today, sir. Thank you very much. Take care, Tristan Goodman, President and CEO of the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. Coming up on the House Podcast, the woman behind the book and Emmy-winning miniseries, Dope Sick. Beth Macy shares what she believes is the key to fighting the overdose crisis. That's in about 10 minutes. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. Send us an email, thehouse at cbc.ca. Something new and strange has happened in Canada. Canada is sitting on probably one of the largest housing bubbles of all times. Something kind of new and certainly surprising did happen in Canadian politics this week. The Conservatives put out a 15-minute video on the housing crisis. It's getting a decent amount of attention. That's surprising for a few reasons. This is longer than your traditional ad, and there are a lot of figures, graphs, and graphics to make Polyev's point. So 
Does this push forward the national conversation on housing? And what does the video tell us about the man who the polls say is poised to be the next prime minister? We've got a couple of folks who have been in the back rooms fighting it out for the very same eyeballs Polyev seems to have won with this video. Melanie Parody was the Director of Strategic Communications for Polyev's predecessor, Erin O'Toole. She's now the president of Texture Communications. Dave Summer used to head up Justin Trudeau's digital comms team. He's now a vice president at public affairs firm Enterprise Canada. Welcome to the house to you both. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. A quick question for both of you. Mel, when you were advising politicians, would you have ever uh, said, hey, let's do a 15-minute video full of graphs where you're going to get very little FaceTime? <laughs> no, but the you know the digital world changes constantly and what people are consuming and what they're looking for is constantly evolving. And so I think that while it, it on the outset, it seems um, a bit wild to produce a 15 minute long explainer video, it's clearly on a topic that there's a lot of demand for right now. There are a lot of Canadians who want answers. They're asking themselves, their family members, their friends, why is this happening? Why is it so hard for people to Find, find a place to live, to be able to afford a home. What's happened to the Canadian dream? And Pierre Polyev is very smartly explaining all of that in, in this 15-minute video. Yeah, Dave, is there, Melanie used the word wild there. Is there something a little bit counterintuitive about this thing? Well, I always say that content um, has to be first and format comes second whenever anyone asks. And the reason for that is you're, there's no magic bullet on the internet. If you do this video for this certain runtime in this aspect ratio, it's going to be an absolute viral hit. No one really knows that. And what obviously Polyev has tapped into here is a significant amount of interest in the housing crisis. And he's used a lot of the rhetorical tactics that he's been honing over the past couple of years and packaged them in a way that makes it so the runtime doesn't actually matter. Now, I will say, if you remember um, in 2015, in the, in the previous liberal, in the first successful liberal campaign, Justin Trudeau did an ad where he said, they say I'm not ready. Da, 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 da. Mm. And people were like, you can't say that. You can't repeat the attack against you. It had never been done at that time. And the same thing, the message, the content was interesting enough that it sort of overrode those doubts about format. Okay. I, I, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this today um, is to talk a little bit about what it tells us about Pierre Polyev. Melanie, what do you think that is? I think it sends a clear signal that Pierre Polyev is a very thoughtful leader. He has put a lot of time and consideration into the issue of housing. And he, I mean, he's been talking about it for, for quite some time. Um, he's been talking about the economy for years. Um, but he's he's done a lot of his own personal research into this. He talks to experts regularly. And he has ideas for how to solve the problem. And what it, one of the things I think that is so great about this video is as partisan as our politics are right now, one of the reasons why even a 15-minute long video like this has become so popular over the past week is it's not actually that partisan. A lot of the points that he's making are many people across the political spectrum can agree with, can can find understanding in, and feel comfortable sharing it with other people who, even if they don't intend to vote conservative, the information in here is packaged in a way that is um, very consumable to the average Canadian. And I think that that shows um, a level of maturity and, and thoughtfulness on Pierre Polyev's part. Dave, Mel raises a few interesting points. Um, one of them is, do you want to present your leader to Canadians as uh, maybe a bit of a wonk 
here, like a policy wonk, right? That this is about how he sees a policy issue that he has done a, a deep dive into it. Is that something that the Conservatives, as as we have this other conversation about whether he is like too partisan, a family man, like who is this guy? Is that something that they would want to be putting in the window right now? Yeah, I think what you see here is an absolute all-out attempt to wring the unseriousness out of Polyev and to try to pitch him as a wonk. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you can see the limits of that in this video, especially halfway through when he goes, and whose fault is it? And then you have the sort of bobblehead of Justin Trudeau, Mm. which speaks to the fact that, frankly, I I understand what Mel is saying when she's saying this is almost a nonpartisan video, but in the end, he blames literally all of Canada's problems on Justin Trudeau and can't resist adding that sort of bobblehead take there, which I think, look, if you're trying to make an effective piece of comms, which is getting everybody talking, that's great, then you either go all in and really position yourself as a statesman in waiting, or you don't. But I think this is where he always gets tripped up from a communication standpoint is, yes, he's positioning himself as the wonk. He's coming in and saying, I can offer solutions to this really painful problem about housing. But at the same time, he's you know offering up wild exaggerations that he blames squarely on one person, the prime minister. So, yeah, let, let's get to that now, what, such as. OK, first things first, and with all of the caveat in the world that I'm not a housing expert, right? But what experts are saying is you cannot possibly tell me that a government's monetary policy or government borrowing is going to increase the, the, house, the price of houses in Canada but not across the border in the United States. In that example, he gives, why is housing so cheap in Niagara, New York, and so expensive in Niagara, Canada? Well, obviously, there are colossal population differences between southern Ontario and western New York. And there's example after example after example that seem truthy, to to use an old expression, Mm -hmm. that seem like they hit you and they make sense because they're presented with a slick graphic, and then they don't really survive that sort of a a bit of a surface scratch there when you're like, hmm. Now, that's not to say there is not a significant housing crisis in Canada that the opposition can capitalize on. But there's still that naive part of me that thinks, boy, I wish we could have a conversation without all the exaggeration. Well, so that leads us to an interesting place, too. And I want to bring you back in here, Melanie. One of the reasons this video is interesting is um, because it really does go deep into an issue. And you made the point that, you know, housing, it's touching everybody right now. We're all talking about it. Do you think this sets a precedent for some more deep dives, or dare I say it, dare I hope for more policy conversation in the next election? Like, like, is this precedent setting here? Or is it more just telling us something about this moment, Pierre Polyev, this issue? It's just about this moment. Unfortunately, look, I would love a policy. I know I would love a policy rich (laughs) election too. But that's that's not not the reality. I mean, I think the issue again is this is so top of mind for so many Canadians. And Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if, if, um, you know, maybe there is space to do another video like this on like grocery prices and explaining like why and supply chains. I I think that there are probably a few other topics that they could do a video like this on and, and, and have similar traction. But housing is really in a special, unfortunately, moment right now where it's just it everyone is talking about it everyone is worried about it and they're just does and they're really sick of there not being a real solution before we move on from the video i just want to squeeze in one more question for dave because dave uh you worked at instagram in washington dc for some time you certainly understand social media from a couple different points of view i wonder if you can just speak to the point of how, how what polyev is doing fits into this moment where so much of the audience for politicians is on social media 
it's, you know, frankly, it was, it was quite a wake up call, I think, for a lot of people who are busy trying to cram more and more into shorter form video, uh, because we know the platforms are really pushing that. And that is where, you know, most people are having success right now. Um, I will point out not to be petty at all, because that's the last thing I would want to do as a partisan. But, you know, actually, before I got to the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau put out a seven and a half minute animated explainer video uh, about the middle class and the economy that raised quite I a few eyebrows. I don't remember that. Then. Like, I was covering the Liberals then. I don't remember. Sorry. <laughs> you, can, you can Google it or look it up on YouTube. It's called An Economy That Benefits Us All. And it was kind of done in this illustrated style. And so just, I raised an eyebrow, of course, as a partisan when I heard this is a groundbreaking thing that Polyeva has done. It's a 15-minute animated explainer. I'm like, look, we, we've done it. We've done it. Now, this times have changed. <laughs> You're just looking for credit? Is that... Uh, no, yeah. it, was, it was actually before I got there. The, okay. My first gig at the Liberal Party was cutting that video up to make PowerPoint slides out of it. So, oh, wow. you know, credit to those who thought it up. But, you know, to, to think now that we've been in this TikTokified era where you have to try to make your point in 15 seconds. And when I speak to folks about social media, what I like to say is you got to give, you got to surprise and delight people with something unexpected. Otherwise, it's the same old, same old as you scroll. And frankly, when you scroll Praliev, it's a lot of the same old, same old. And this is something new. In closing, we just have a moment left, but I'd like to get you both to weigh in on whether or not the liberals should try to respond to this. I know uh, Mr. Polyev has been in question period inviting the Liberals to a private screening. I'm assuming they're going to say no uh, to that. But Melanie, if uh, if you if you were in an office right now giving advice about how to respond to something like this, do you do you just ignore it? What do you do? I think that they that they should adopt a lot of the policies or a lot of the ideas that Pierre Polyev has put forward in this video. Um, one of the challenges that you have in opposition... Well, there is a bit of overlap, we have to say, Certainly. between what Mr. Polyev is pitching and what the Liberals have been doing. Things like density around transit and, you know, different ways of pushing municipal governments. But there, there already is some overlap. I think that they definitely need to double down on that to make it more obvious Okay. in that case. One of the challenges in opposition is if you put forward good ideas, it's likely that the other side's going to take them and you won't end up getting any credit for it by the time the election comes around. That's always a risk. But I think that the play here is to certainly is to position Pierre Polyev as thoughtful, as well-researched, as you know, really having thought this problem through and having offered up solutions, which, which is a shift from more of the kind of attack dog persona that people may have, have thought of him previously. Uh, Dave, I do, the question I do want to get to with you quickly, uh, should the prime minister respond to this? No, I don't think so. I think that the best response from the prime minister would be to, you know, resist the temptation to play in Polyev's sandbox every time Polyev brings up an issue, right? To, to start really thinking about what he's going to put in the window for himself in 2024 and beyond, and to to sort of not fall into the trap that the opposition leader has set beautifully and has done excellent work on, which is getting the liberals to talk about what he wants to talk to all the time. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much for your insights today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Dave Summer and Melanie Parody. We began looking at something that could be big. Oxycontin. Purdue Pharma, they've been marketing the drug as something that's not addictive when it clearly is. All your doctors are going to be asking, how is this even possible? Your most effective talking point are these magic words. Less than one percent. Less than one percent. Less than one. Less than one. They told me that less than one percent would become addicted. That is part of the trailer for the series Dope Sick, a look at how one company triggered the worst 
drug epidemic in American history. It's based on the book by author Beth Macy, who chronicled how the opioid epidemic has shattered lives. Her latest book is Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. As part of our ongoing coverage of Canada's toxic drug crisis, Beth Macy joins us to help us better understand some of the bigger forces at play. We reached her in Roanoke, Virginia. Welcome to the house. Thanks for having us, Catherine. Glad to. Now, you started covering this as an opioid crisis fueled by prescription drugs. Now we talk about the toxic drug crisis. From where you are sitting, what has that change looked like? Well, the the overdose deaths just keep climbing. The most recent numbers um, in the U.S. was we lost 111,000 in the last year that we have data for. And it's just skyrocketing. Um, you know, I was at a book event recently, and there was a harm reduction group there doing Narcan training. And five people in my city of 100,000 people died that day. Do, do you think the public understands that this isn't fundamentally about prescription drugs right now? I think, I'm not sure exactly what they understand. I I think the show and attention... Um, to the crisis and and who the people who started this were is helpful. But I think it's such a hard issue that there's a lot of fatigue around it and people don't want to look at it, even though, uh, according to new survey uh, really done in the last six months, we now have two thirds of American families that have been impacted by the opioid crisis. And of course, most of those deaths more recently are being caused by fentanyl. But there's no question that the overprescribing of the pill beginning with OxyContin uh, in 1996 is really what started this epidemic. That number, two-thirds of families, is, is really just stunning. You, in your latest book, look at some of the lengths that people in the United States are going to to provide help to the people in the throes of this crisis. That might be clean needles, it might be fentanyl test strips. What kind of lengths are people going to? What did you see? I started the book out next to a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot in a dying furniture town in Hickory, North Carolina, which is, you know, Appalachia, where a nurse practitioner who had worked all day at a clinic treating mostly HIV and addiction was meeting people where they were. He was meeting new patients that had come to him through the harm reduction group that he volunteers for to get them started on what's called low barrier buprenorphine, um, which is the medication assisted treatment that stems cravings and helps people not overdose and die. It's a bit like methadone, right? People are more familiar with that term. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we have so many barriers for people getting these gold standard of care medications like buprenorphine and methadone. And the biggest problem is that people have been stigmatized anytime they've tried to get help. You know, they've had a relapse and then they've been kicked out of the program that, you know, was meant to help them. Or they've been sent many states away to an abstinence-only rehab that doesn't even allow them to take this life-saving medicine. So I thought it was really important to start with this nurse practitioner sort of out in the field, like in his own personal car. You know, these organizations are like run on uh, uh, duct tape and glue. Uh, They don't have a lot of money. Um, 
some of them have some state funding, but it's 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 generally people who really care. Some of them are people in recovery themselves, and they're literally meeting people where they are, whether it's in a tent encampment under a bridge or at a McDonald's dumpster. And and what he said to them, and this is really why I led the book with this, is he said, look, I'm going to call you in this discount uh, buprenorphine script in the morning, but first I want you to know two things. And and as I did my research, I came to think that these two things were really the keys to to turning the crisis back. Um, and the first thing was, you can get better. We have lost so much hope around this that we're not even trying. That includes both the users and the systems that are meant to help them. We have six to eight percent of doctors in America that are even willing to to do this treatment. So there's a huge treatment gap. And the second thing he says to him is don't disappear. And that's this idea of even if you return to use, even though I've put you on this medication, still come back to our appointment next week. And if you can't make it here, text me and I'll come to you. We'll work something out. It's this idea of really reaching this group of people who feel they can't stop using. And largely that's because they've just been treated so poorly by hospitals, by doctors, by that criminal criminal justice system, which is still very much in our country, um, drug war oriented. So let me ask you then, I mean, you wrote this book, got a lot of attention, then you made this series, this TV series that reached an even broader audience. You talk about the number of people, two thirds of families in the United States affected by this. I mean, what do you, what do you think needs to happen in terms of the, the public discourse, the public awareness to really see a change? Because we would you would think after years of watching this get worse and worse that we would be turning things around. I mean, we broadly, right? Society. And yet so mm-hmm. many people feel such despair. They do. And I think it's just important for people like me and you to keep telling the stories that blend the data and what really works, what the science says is best with the stories on the ground. Because I see, I mean, I talk all across the country a lot. I was in Kansas earlier this week. And I see people really responding to the stories. And they asked me a question very much like that. And I said, you have to get your people out there. And you have to show that there is hope. This is a treatable medical condition. But because we've made treatments so hard to get, people have lost their hope for it. So um, really, I I thought I I devoted a lot of this book to harm reduction because I really see that as a gateway to MAT, medication-assisted treatment, which I see as a gateway to recovery. And I felt like if I could make those gateway lines clearer, people would begin to understand. Beth, it is the enormity of this is a lot for any of us to process, right? The the numbers are incredible. Even here in Canada, 21 people on average dying a day. Mm. Can you tell me about one person that you would hope people keep in mind when they think about the situation we're dealing right now in terms of the drug crisis and and where things might go from here? Yeah, the person that her spirit hangs over almost everything I've written since I first met her in 2015. Her name was Tess Henry. Her story very much influenced the Dope Six show and the character character Betsy. But she was the, a daughter from an upper middle class family. Her dad was a surgeon, her mom a hospital nurse. She got overprescribed at an urgent care center. And then I watched her for two and a half years just 
hit barrier after barrier. She couldn't get her MAT. Uh, she she would get jailed. She would get no treatment in jail. She would get sent to an abstinence-only rehab. And then when she bombed out of that, she was homeless and on the streets of Las Vegas, living in an abandoned minivan with a pimp. Of all the people that you and I know, she's the least person we would expect she would end up murdered on Christmas Eve of 2017. And uh, what she told me the first time I interviewed her was she described being overprescribed in urgent care. And she said, I don't know what this means, but I know we need urgent care for the addicted. You know, someplace, a walk-in center where somebody can get connected to housing and treatment and other social supports, just as easy as it was for her to go in for a simple case of bronchitis and get prescribed two 30-day opioid prescriptions, you know, which is what led to her downfall. She said, we need urgent care for the addicted. And so that's what I was attempting to answer. What is urgent care for the addicted in, in both of the books? It makes me think of someone that we met over the course of our coverage who is maybe the other side of that coin. You you talk about how she might have been the least likely person. Um, we met someone who's recovering from addiction, Kyle Arnold in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And he said, if you had seen me out on the streets when I was strung out and skinny, you would have thought I was the least likely guy to survive. Everyone would have told you I was yeah. the least likely guy to survive. And I found a way to do it. I love that story. Yeah. I love that story. There's a girl, a, a woman named Mary Jo in Raising Lazarus, and I just saw her a couple months ago. And she said, when you first met me, you could barely see my eyes because I was high all the time. Now you can barely see my eyes because I'm smiling. And she's been sober now for a year. She just got her peer support specialist. And she's out there. She's a superhero. She's helping people get into care right and left. Beth Macy, it was a real pleasure to meet you over the radio. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much, Catherine. Beth Macy is the author of Dope Sick and Raising Lazarus. She talked a lot about techniques around harm reduction, and they also came up on Parliament Hill this week as the Health Committee launched a study into the opioid epidemic and toxic drug crisis. The Conservatives zeroed in on the issue of what's known as safe supply. That's when users are prescribed opioids instead of using drugs off the street. One concern diversion when these prescription opioids find their way into the wrong hands, sometimes teenagers. Earlier this season, we spoke with one doctor about his concerns. But on Monday, the Conservatives made a big allegation. Here's Alberta MP Shuvalu Majumder questioning witness Jennifer Sachs from Health Canada about safe supply. It's a policy that started in 2020. How many people have died as a result of this policy? We have information on opioid toxicity deaths across Canada, and as you know, there are a range of actions that are being taken by the federal government, by provinces and territories, by community groups to reduce and address. I can tell you the number, which should be carved into the desk of every person working on this, from the minister's office down to the analyst. It's 23,823 Canadians who have died from a policy that has not been even proven whether or not as an experiment or otherwise, to be effective. Just to be clear, he said that more than 23,000 Canadians have died from the policy of safe supply. Majumder also tweeted out that clip, reinforcing the claim. But it is not correct. That's simply the number of people who have died of an opioid overdose since the policy was introduced. We know that most overdose deaths happening right now in Canada have nothing to do with pharmaceutical drugs. And even in cases where they do, the link to safe supply isn't apparent. For example, the BC chief coroner says there's no evidence that diverted safe supply was causing increased harm or death. 
We asked the conservatives what evidence they had to link 23,000 deaths to government policy. They sent us a newspaper article where the family of a 14-year-old girl says her death by overdose came after becoming hooked on drugs used in safer supply programs. And the conservatives also pointed to concerns from some doctors calling for limits on the practice. They did not provide any evidence linking it to thousands of deaths. Now, data is still being collected on the effectiveness of safe supply, but there is some evidence to show the policy helps, according to another committee witness. Dr. Samuel Weiss is the scientific director of the Institute of Neurosciences, Mental Health and Addiction. The early research results coming out suggest that um, in highly marginalized clients, those who have limited access to uh, health services, safe supply is helpful and effective in reducing cravings, reducing time on the streets, and reducing uh, deaths. However, it's also been shown that it works best when wraparound services are also there as well. And uh, the critical element is that with wraparound services, clients are then expected to attend and participate in allied health and social services that's when safe supply is uh, most effective. Many of the MPs taking part in this committee study are ones we heard from on this program recently, talking about how the opioid crisis is personal. And while there was a lot of debate about how to tackle the crisis, there was agreement on one thing. But I have to say, whatever it is that we're doing, it's not working. Clearly, what we're doing isn't working. The current model that we have is clearly not working, and so we need to take new directions. The voices you heard there were Conservative MP Todd Doherty, NDP MP Gort Johns, and finally Liberal MP Brendan Hanley. That wraps up our special coverage of the opioid crisis for this season, but stay tuned for a special episode over the holiday break featuring some of the remarkable people we met and what we learned. And of course, we'll keep an eye on this issue and we'll bring you an update on any major developments. Okay, that's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Emma Godmere and Christian Paz Lang. This week, our program was senior produced by Kristen Everson and Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.